If you, will be, if you will remain standing for the reading of God's Word, we'll be reading from Romans 12, 9 through 10, but we will be hitting um, 1 through 2 as necessary context. So hear the Word of God together from Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, we, we've come to the turning point of Romans where we're going to see a, a barrage of exhortations, commands, imperatives, lots of implications of the mercies we've received. And on that, we get to the, what's probably one of the chief attributes of the Christian life, which is love, in verse 9. Let love be genuine. So if God's rescued his people from slavery to sin and set them free to learn how to, 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 to love one another and love him, uh, we're to understand love and how to do it. That's who we are. And so I'll tell you, I, 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 I feel like we, we throw this word around a lot, love. See, if you know me, you know that I love meeting new people and hearing their stories and learning about them. You know, I, I love that. Actually, I don't love that. Uh, that's, uh, in court, and that's not what we're talking about today. I have a strong preference for that activity. I have a proclivity towards that. I would think it's, I, I love it, but not in the love that we're talking about here. It's a different kind of love, right? One time I was speaking with a, a man uh, when we first moved here, and, and I, I typically, if I'm at a baseball game and watching some of my kids play, I'll end up getting distracted and talking to the people next to me and find out what they do and, and who they are. And one of the guys I spoke to had a fascinating job. He was a, he was a statue maker uh, for the Heisman Trophy guys. You know, so I think they had just unveiled the Jason White tro- uh, statue at that time. And since then, they've unveiled the Baker Mayfield statue for the OU Heisman winner. And they have another one coming up. You know, so I got to know this guy. And I thought it was a, a pretty fun job to talk about, and I could tell he really loved sharing what he did, you know, so I, I love hearing what they do, and I, it stuck with me, uh, and I, I, I get people's stories, and I really enjoy finding out what they do, what makes them tick, why they love what they do, uh, and so as you're considering that, you know, it's, I have a preference for that, you know, it's like some people say they love disc golf, I frankly think disc golf's overrated, so, you know, that's, that's like, <laughs> that's a different, you know, we have a difference of opinion on disc golf, right, but that's not love. You know, we throw around love a lot. Love, according to what we're talking about here, is to discern and value true love. And so it says uh, in the first of our text here, let love be genuine, implying that there is a lot of counterfeits out there. You know, let love be genuine. You want to be able to recognize the counterfeits and the truth when you see it. I would say, as we said earlier, love is the quintessential Christian attribute. He says that elsewhere, faith, hope, and love but the greatest of these is love. But what is love there? He's going to instruct the church, Paul is, uh, this church who's embraced the gospel. 
on how they're going to be called to express love. We've embraced the gospel, but we're also called to express love as God's gospel people. We have received God's love to us in the gospel, and now we're going to express it back to him and to his people. So the first exhortation there, then regarding love, is, is number one, valuing true love. And then, and then follows in rapid succession with uh, two parallel exhortations, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Again, it's getting at that point that we have a renewal of our mind in Christ. It says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So there's there's a punctiliar, definitive renewal of your mind that occurs when you are redeemed and you receive this redemption in Christ. You have a new mind to you. But there's also an ongoing, continual renewal of the mind that must be happening in you because you still have a sin nature. You still have an old man within you. And so, as we've seen in in Paul's writings already in Romans, that there's a struggle to to renew our mind, to think God's thoughts after him and let love be understood according to God's purposes for it. So, when we think about abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good, then we've got to ask, what is evil and what is good? It's a good question, right? Philosophy 101 class, you know, how do you, get, uh, how do you know what's good and what is evil? Well, uh, I would say that you want to start thinking about it back in creation. Genesis 1 speaks of God making all things in the span of six days, and at the conclusion he says, and it was good. God defines it as good because it was made by him and accomplishes his purposes for what he, what he made it. It is functional. It serves his purposes. Perfection would be completely making its purposes you know, fulfilled. But good is, according to God's design, uh, doing what it's designed to do. And uh, evil would be um, not functioning according to God's design, but uh, disintegration and overthrow of creation's design according to God's purposes. So when we speak of love, the most, which is probably the most common subject of any song or the humanities, arts, you know, in writing and uh, poetry, uh, love, when we speak of love in terms of what it actually is, is, is the first thing we've got to do. We've got to know genuine love. We've got to uh, let love be genuine, as God says. Our chief starting point, if we're going to grow in love, is an awareness of this. Because you might know that around you are very toxic ideas about life and, and who you are and who God is. And so our biggest problem is likely uncritical adoption of all the toxic ideas around you. And that's why Paul starts and begins with, let love be true or genuine, right? Some of our things that we're swimming in are poisonous, polluted, evil. We're to despise those things, to cling to what is good. You know, the worldly mantra is love is love, which simply just says, hey, we're, we're all equipped to love however we want, and no one should have anything to say about it. You go be you. You figure out who you are inside, and you let that be expressed out, and no one should critically Uh, have anything to say about that. Let love be love, right? Assumes everyone has the capacity to love in a way that's good. 
Well, all creatures in our age have unanimously voted to hate God. Uh, we have our ears plugged, you know, saying, when God tries to speak to us, la, 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 will not listen. Uh, we do not want to hear God. We, we are Romans 3 people uh, and, and by nature where no one seeks after God. No one does right. Our tongues practice deceit. Our throats are empty, gra- our, our, our stinking graves. We are la, 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 all the way along, not wanting to hear what God has to say. And so as, as we've heard many times throughout this series, God creates man in his image, but since then, as Romans 1, 18 says, we've been creating God in our image, creating God's world in, in, in the way we want it to function. And so love, which has a design for God's image bearers, has been hijacked and made not about gifting other people with love, but, but receiving self-expression and validation and joy from others uh, as our identity. There's a craving to be loved, which is wonderful. We all want to be loved. We all desire love. That's a part of who we are as image bearers. But if it's ex- excluded from God and his design, it is toxic to us. It becomes uh, turned on its head, and it's destructive. Fallen human beings have an amazing capacity to make the concept of love about meeting one's own needs. But let's look at what the Bible says. Just real quick. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends or never fails. I just have to look at this. Uh, it, it has, it, it, like, to be loving, you cannot insist on your own way. You cannot insist on, this is the way I'm going to do this, and you must all get behind the way I'm going to do it. It must be... Uh, as we said here, genuine. And so what we're doing to understand what genuine love is, is we're, we're, we're using the analogy of faith. We're looking at what other scriptures say to give clarity to what love is. That's the only way to know is what God says love is. Let it be. And I want that to be my definition of love. That's the way we start when we think about concepts. Is we don't start from what we just assume is right, but we want to know what does the scripture say, if anything, on that topic, right? And so when we look at love, it's very clear. Love is one of the most... Uh, used words in the, in the, uh, in the scriptures. Uh, speaking of our love to others, love to God, and his love to us. When you're thinking about love is patient, love is kind, love is not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, doesn't insist on its own way, not irritable or resentful, not rejoicing at wrongdoing. You've got to think about what is wrongdoing? Who, who determines that? Love rejoices at the truth. Love actually abhors evil, and clings to the good. Exactly what Paul is saying here in 12.9 in Romans, also in 1 Corinthians 13. It's consistent. So we have to begin, we're thinking about what is love and valuing love, to not assume that we're all capable of love, or to think that we think rightly of it. Paul in the Bible right here in Romans doesn't take that for granted. It's actually telling Christians, let love be genuine. Let love be true. Why? Because we have a tendency to be wrapped up in toxic ideas about what love is. We are just as susceptible as anyone else of thinking on critically about what love is and derailing. 
and causing great damage to ourselves and others and sinfully thinking of ourselves and others and God. You know, Paul knows that. He knows himself. He's not saying you out there need to be doing this. He's saying I need to let love be genuine. As you think about this, he knows you better than you know you. How many, how many of you have read Romans 7? How many of you have read that autobiographical description of who he is and said, that's me too? Oh, the good I want to do, I can't do. The evil I, want to, I don't want to do, I keep doing. What is this in me? Who is this? Who will deliver me from this bondage? Thanks be to Christ. Who would deliver me from this body of death? We have this struggle within us, and he knows that. He says, you must let love be genuine. You must uh, consider love, abhor what is evil, and cling to what is good. Uh, now, you might think, well, Paul's just being too, he's being too harsh. You know, like, Jesus would never say anything like that. So, John 2, 23 says, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about men, for he himself knew what was in man. You know, that is uh, ugly, isn't it? <laughs> he knew it was in man. You know, hey, they're, they're outwardly affirming him. They, they're, they're, they're acting very kind towards him. But he says, I will not entrust myself to those people, because he knows what's in those people. He knows he'll be stabbed in the back before too long. He knows he'll be betrayed by his people. They'll try to destroy him. Uh, he says elsewhere in John 5, 39, says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, that you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. You can't receive the word of God, though you read it and have heard it, because you don't have the love of God in you. You don't even have the love of God in you. That, that's what he says about unredeemed, unbelieving peoples. You don't have the love of God within you. Paul and Jesus are perfectly aligned in their critical approach to our capacity to love. He did not, Jesus did not entrust himself to people who outwardly were affirming him, welcoming him. He knew in a short amount of time he'd be betrayed by them. So as you think about that and the way we relate to our people, our people out there, it's pretty, it, it, you have to be a pretty cynical person, right, to, to think, well, no one is capable of loving me and they're all going to betray me. But that's... That's the reality is that Jesus says he will not entrust himself to these people. And Paul says, you really don't know what love is. Let me direct you to what love is from outside of you. Okay? How much of uh, what a young man or a woman feels uh, when they feel that in love feeling is uh, just genuine love? How much of it is just flattery? And we're flattered. We feel good because someone's looking at us and someone thinks about us and someone's, you know, giving us something we enjoy. We have a preference for it. I think it's really not that different than I love disc golf. I love chatting with people. Um, we love, but we're really thinking about how it makes me feel, okay? That is the toxic, evil kind of love that we've got to get over. Now, of course, love does bring us great joy, exactly. But that is not the principle posture of love. You think about it, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Love and gave are very synonymous there. Love does not insist on its own way as he says in 1 Corinthians 13. 
So love, if you want to, if you want to just the, the most absolutely straightforward statement in Scripture of what love is, you want to turn to 1 John 4.10. And it says, in this is love. This is, I mean, this, it can't be any more clear than this. This is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you don't know that word propitiation, it means the satisfaction of God's wrath. Jesus endures the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins in love. Sins, sins are placed upon Jesus and he is bruised and killed for our sins as a, as a sacrifice for us. So love and sacrifice go together. Love and the other go together. It is about me putting my eyes on another and considering that person above myself at the base level. Love is an outflow of the heart. You know, these Pharisees were good at the externals, uh, but uh, the heart is the issue. Uh, love must flow out of the heart. You can't just, you, you can't make yourself love, actually. The heart's the center of the person. So to love God and love your neighbor is the sum of the moral law, but when Jesus encountered the rich young ruler in Luke, uh, that guy knew all the right things to do. He knew all the right commands to, to, to define what it would be to love God and love neighbor in the law of God, the moral law of God, summarized in the Ten Commandments. He knew those things, but he couldn't do them. Jesus said to him, okay, well, sell everything you have and then give it to the poor. And he was unwilling to give what he had. He was unwilling to, to love because that didn't come from who he was. He wasn't born again. And, and when you see a, a, a one who is born again, it's come and follow me, take up a cross, lay down your life, lose your life for my sake, and you will gain it. Like, we have no problem with that. That is my joy to die for you, right? And that's your joy to die for me. I know you've died for me before, or you've given for me, and I've given for you because we love Jesus. That is not native to who we are as human beings. That is a miracle of God that you are willing to do something for someone else because of Christ, Hear this, God continues that statement in 1 John 4.10 by saying, after this is love, that God sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. It says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So, so the love we have for others shows and demonstrates the invisible God, right? That's what John's saying. And it says in 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he's given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. It says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he is and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. And then it says flatly, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. It says, by this abiding in one another, love is perfected with us. This is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. How do you live with punishment over you? That's not a love relationship. The fear of punishment. 
you are freed from the punishment. You're freed, you're ransomed from the debts that you owe through the propitiation in Christ. You have nothing to fear from God. We love because he first loved us. So if you're going to say, I love God, but then you hate your brother, he says, you're a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So he says, John says it in a much harsher way than, than Paul says it. Let love be genuine and abhor what's evil and cling to what's good. And genuine love will demonstrate who God is because he abides in you. You will look so different than you used to be because of who God is. It's inevitable. There's inevitability about this love. That's the thing you've got to know about love. Love is inevitable. First thing you've got to know, right? It says in Deuteronomy 36, 30 verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love your God with all your heart, with all your soul that you may live. He says he will change your heart so that you will love your God. He will change your heart so that you will love. It's inevitable. It is inevitable that you love God and love your brothers because of who God is and what he's accomplishing in you. At the cross, Jesus accomplished that feat. And then throughout the ongoing application of it by his Holy Spirit, he shed the love of God abroad in our hearts. As Romans 5, 5 says, it says God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit so that we will not be put to shame. And what will this inevitable love do? There's a Star Trek movie. Anyone like Star Trek? Uh, there's a Star Trek movie called The Wrath of Khan where they, the scientists in this particular movie created a machine to what they call do terraform dead planets. So they take a dead planet and they turn the Genesis device loose on that planet and they launch it on this dead planet and life takes hold and the entire planet is brought to life. Once it's unleashed, it cannot be stopped. Life is inevitable. And so the same is true of Christ's atonement. Once it is let loose upon you, life, in our case, holy love in our life is inevitable. The power of the cross is that we will be holy. As Jesus is said in Hebrews to be, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You are inevitably becoming a lover of God and men all of your days. You're being sanctified because of what Christ has already done. That's the issue. Has Christ already done this or not? When you consider your capacity to love now in Christ, there's a confidence there. There's a rest in that because it is done. It is finished. You are set apart. You are sanctified. You are new. You love him because he's loved you. His perfect love has been worked in you and in your heart. The blood of Christ accomplishes both our justification and our sanctification, or our love. It's inevitable. So God, this, this God is love. God is love. And he sheds it upon you, pours into your heart, and you start to love everybody else. You abide in him, and he abides in you. Before, did you know that before anything existed in all of creation, there was love? Because our God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do not have three gods. We have one God who is in three persons. And one God in three persons is the way he is. And this is uniquely, because we can say God is love in 1 John 
for, as a summary of who he is, because he has always known charitable, serving, kind, mutual submission and, and humbling and giving within himself, loving fellowship, a dance, if you will. Some people call it a dance uh, between God. Jesus was taking that out and bringing it to creation when he took on flesh, bringing it out of eternity in the person of the Godhead and bringing it to us. There was a, a, a covenant of redemption made between these, perp, these persons that would unfold in history. And it reaches back into eternity, but it, we're thinking about eternal persons here. Eternal persons becoming one with our world. So in a sense, God and his love are always present in this world, but they're never comprehended by this world. They're never they're, ne- they're, they're always beyond this world because it's God, he's eternal, and these eternal persons are, are loving and in fellowship above us, but they're right here and eminently present in your heart at the same time. Jesus has granted us to know eternal life, that we might know the true God and who he is, and that is the greatest thing you could know, the highest privilege. Now, as we said, God's love is not native to us, but it must be given to us. It must be pursued. God drives our pursuit of it. God's going to give us the clearest expression of it in the love of Christ to us. And his love is not merited, but it is by mercy. It says in, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that we are dead in our sins. But it says in 4, God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved. We can put to death any thoughts of ever being worthy of his love and start to rest in his love because it's, it's, that's what he's promised. In Romans 5, 8, it says that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so God has eternally been loved and he knows what, etern- what eternal love is. And so he is the love expert and his love is eternally his experience. So he's going to give it to us and the, all of redemptive history is a stage whereby he extends that love out to us. First it occurred in Israel, and now it's occurring in the church as the gospel is preached. Now, as you consider who Jesus is and what he came to do, John 17, 24, he is praying. And he says this, Father, I desire that they also, meaning future believers, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before there was any creation, there was nothing but God and there was love. The Son being loved by the Father, the Father loving the Son, the Spirit loving them both. The creation was to be filled with the glorious love of God. It was his eternal plan to pour his love into his people. He says, continuing in John 17, Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. This love is inevitable, it's inexhaustible, and we're to work it out in our day-to-day lives. Now, holy love, not being native to us, must be brought about through the gospel. It says, therefore, in light of God's mercies, we're going to be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind, which occurs once and definitively and ongoing through all of our days. So we got this gospel good news. And so we need to be reminded of how to show brotherly love 
our Philadelphia affection to our fellow believers. And so that's the, that's the first exhortation there. He says in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Now, John Calvin writes in, one, in his institute, he says, how can the mind be aroused to taste the divine goodness without at the same time being wholly kindled to love God in return? For truly, that abundant sweetness which God has stored up for those who fear him cannot be known without at the same time powerfully moving us. And once anyone has been moved by it, it utterly ravishes him and draws him to itself. The love of God utterly ravishes him and draws him up into himself. We're thinking about how do we love people more. It starts and ends, it begins and ends with how much do we know of God's love. That's where it begins and ends. There's no like five-step, ten-step, twelve-step process of how to be a better lover of people. You must know the love of God. That's what Calvin understood. That's what Samuel Rutherford said when, when I would give you my heart, but Jesus has already taken it and run off with it to heaven. And I long to be with him. Christ is our love. And we serve him gladly and joyfully in our service toward others. We show brotherly affection because it's who we are. God's my master now. Previously it was me. Now I think about this. You know that man I mentioned that, that Jesus encountered in Luke. Now, he said, hey, you, you, you can give all your possessions away and sell them and give to the poor, right? Well, Jesus also says in Luke 16, no, can, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So what God has done is he's brought you into fellowship with these other sinners who are saved by grace, your brothers, your sisters, and you show brotherly affection to them because of who Jesus is. He's your master. He's your Lord. And so money, which used to be something I wanted to accumulate, is now something I, I, I have so that I can give to you. That's actually it. I have it so I can give it away uh, for the sake of Jesus, my Savior. That's why I have money. Post-gospel, everything has changed. Before gospel, I was just like the world. After gospel, I have money so I can give it to the sake of worshiping Jesus and blessing his, my brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. You know, so, so it says in, in, in Luke 10, 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbors yourself. All that you have, money, everything. Everything's different. I show brotherly affection with every resource I have, every stewardship that I have, of what God's been given to me because everything's different. I'm devoted to the Lord now. I am a living sacrifice. I am wholly committed to him as we read in Romans 12, 1 through 2. I have to think in those terms and remind myself of those things every day because I'm, I have a tendency to be conformed into a different image, the pattern of this world, which is, hey, the money's for me. They need to get their own money. Now, it says love with brotherly affection, of course. Had that brotherly love and for sisters. It was originally used of blood relationships. But Paul is applying it to the warm affection that we have for others who know Christ, just like we do, who've been redeemed and brought into the family of God. So finally, he says, we can grow in our love by outdoing one another in showing honor. Now, I like this one because it's, it's all about competition. You know, it's, like, it's like I outdo one another in showing honor to one another, right? So Paul calls on Christians to outdo one another in blessing and honoring others. You know, so, uh, so for example, you might say, hey, to your spouse, I love you. But then tell them, hey, I love you because you are so good 
at serving other people. And you make me want to be a better servant of Christ. Just saying particular things that you love and thank the Lord for that work of grace, right? So my friend I mentioned earlier, his name's Charlie, who worked with the trophies and the statues, right, of the Heisman, right? Rather than seeking to, uh, to, to accumulate trophies, you know, he was a spectator at this game, right? We are also spectators in the game, and we should now seek to outdo one another in showing honor. So if you want to think of it this way, think of it as you want to make statues of the people around you. You want to honor them. You want to store up for their, them their accomplishments, right? Their achievements. And honor what God's doing in them because, you know what? At the end of the day, that's actually honoring Christ. Because where those good works come from? From his grace. From his work. For the, these people abiding in him. You bestow trophies on every brother you know. Especially those that are, you're called to love particularly. Your wife, your husband, your kids, your, your neighbor, your co-workers, your, your, your members of this church. You love because God loved you. You accomplish these things of love, these feats of love, these, these amazing accomplishments of loving another sinner by the grace of God. Now, think about this. If a marriage is going to be focused on two people, focused on outdoing one another and showing honor, that's going to be a pretty healthy competition of I'm going to try to serve and honor my wife, and she's going to try to honor and outdo me in serving me. Uh, and if you think about that, apply that to your roommates. Now, if you've if you got a roommate situation, if you're focused on showing honor to your roommate above yourself and outdoing that person, what happens when the wife or the roommate or the husband or whatever doesn't, doesn't get the memo and doesn't like that? It doesn't, doesn't, does not operate on the same program that you're doing. You're just outdoing them in honor all the time and you feel like I'm getting, you know, you know, I'm a doormat here. I'm doing all the good work and no one's appreciating it, right? Well, love transforms. Even dead sinners who can't see it. Love and the gospel will transform. The holy love of God ravishes souls when Christ is formed in them. All you have, all, all your responsibility is to love. Uh, God's job is to ravish the soul with it. He'll do that. You pray for that. What do you need to do, you know, if you need improvement here? You say, I'm not good at loving. I've failed in this. Number one, pray for a more loving heart. Confess the sin of, of being selfish and not, you know, not seeking to honor others above yourself and, and ask God to pour the love in through your heart, in the spirit, as Romans 5, 5 says. He says he'll do it, and we ask him to, to keep his promises to us so we can love others for his sake, especially in the church, without hypocrisy. And secondly, we're to think. Think about who God is. Consider Philippians 4, 8. This is a great verse. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if, there's any, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. That is something. This God who sings over his people, exalts over them, quiets me with singing a mighty one who saves, that's something that's worthy, that's true, that's honorable, that's just, that's pure, that's lovely, 
commendable and excellent. Think on that. Think on who God is. Uh, If you wanted to do a search through your Bible software, through your app, and just go through it, most every book you turn to will be the same story over and over. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136, 26. Give thanks to the Lord your God for his steadfast love endures forever. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake because of your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. But you, O Lord, are a God of merciful, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. David in his sin in 51.1, repenting, says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. It's over and over. The love of God is the thing that is the center of every believer. The love of God. We're to think on that wonderful, lovely, excellent love that we know even more profoundly in that God gave his son for you, for me, to save us from our sins and to welcome us into his presence and to know, to know him. 1 Kings 8, 23. Oh, oh Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you. Can you say that? There is no God like you. That was Solomon's word. Solomon, who was a sinner. It says, in heaven above or in earth beneath, there is no God like you, keeping covenant, showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You know, for God, love is not a sentimental thing. It's a covenant thing. He's committed to you before you committed to him, and he never breaks his word. He will keep his love to you, and his, his love will be upon you forevermore. When Jesus left his disciples and ascended into heaven, he says, this is my commission. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I commanded, and, lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. I'm never leaving. I'm never forsaking you. I'm never going away. His spirit sheds the love of God abroad in your heart. How? Prayer thinking on the excellent things in the Word of God, those very promises that where we can say, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? Faithful, steadfast in His love, keeping covenant, showing mercy to generations. We have to have that as a, as a regular sentence in our vocabulary, in our prayers. Or we have no chance uh, of not being conformed to the toxic ideas. We're going to flood out those ideas with truth. Let the grace of God flow through the promises of God, the gospel promises. That's our, that's our exhortation today. Let love be genuine. Let us pray.